This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's program... 120 million kids out of school because they are displaced, because they are caught in crisis, because they're in the middle of a conflict, a disaster. When the school is closed, there's also a very high risk that some children will not return to school again, ever. We do not support them now. They will be drawn in to armed groups. The boys will end up there and the girls will be into forced child marriage and early child pregnancies. Here in Geneva, where so many international organisations focus on humanitarian emergencies, we regularly report on conflict, on the immediate needs for shelter, food, water and medicines. But what about education? Is it the poor relation in humanitarian aid, despite its fundamental importance in the life of every child? That's what we're going to discuss in today's Inside Geneva – And we're going to look at a groundbreaking new Geneva-based initiative designed to make sure education is a priority in every humanitarian emergency. Without education, we are only going to make them dependent, victimised and never draw on their resilience to become the change makers. Education is providing kids or youth with vital information about how to behave when you see non-exploded ordinances, how do you behave in times of pandemic. Education it has a lot to do with protection. If we want gender equality, invest in education. If we want to reduce poverty, eliminate hunger, as well as for peace-building initiatives, absolutely education is the key. To begin... I talked to Yasmin Sharif, Director of Education Cannot Wait, a fund which supports delivery of education in emergencies. Just back from the Democratic Republic of Congo, she took the time for our interview despite, as you'll hear, suffering a very sore throat after her travels. For Yasmin, education is a foundation stone we must never neglect, however difficult the circumstances. You know, one of my great genius artist favorites was Leonardo da Vinci. And he said, we have to learn to connect the dots to see the whole picture. When we provide water and we provide tents, which are important per se, I'm not underestimating it. We are catering to the dots. When you provide education, you're looking at the bigger picture. Because if we ensure that the children and adolescents receive a quality education, we can address all sustainable development goals through their capacity. That means we can end extreme poverty, we can ensure gender equality, we can ensure injustice and socioeconomic justice. So providing education from the very first moment they become refugees displaced or marginalized means that we are investing in human capacity to be self-reliant and to help achieve the socioeconomic needs for their communities, their country, and maybe for the world at large in a more equitable way. So I say, look at the bigger picture when you are in an emergency. And I have worked 30 years in the business of crisis. And I can say, without education, we are only going to make them dependent, 
victimized and never draw on their resilience to become the change makers. Education is the foundation for empowerment so that they don't need to live in tents and get a bottle of water, which is not wrong per se. We have to save human life and education is part of saving human life. Yasmin has found key support from Switzerland, which prioritizes education in its humanitarian aid. At the start of this year, the Swiss government got together with UNICEF, Education Cannot Wait, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the UN Refugee Agency and others to create a new Geneva-based hub for education in emergencies. Ambassador Manuel Bessler, head of the Swiss Humanitarian Aid Unit, told me more. We start with the, with the needs and they are gigantic you know, and, and very convincing. 120 million kids out of school because they are displaced, because they are caught in crisis, because they're in the middle of a conflict, a disaster. And on top of it, the pandemic, one out of two kids that are from a refugee family uh, that are not in school, COVID pandemic uh, globally, over 800 million kids have no regular access to school or are not fully back into in school. At least 90 countries, yeah, either closed school or partly opened it only. I mean, the numbers are, are, are shocking. And we always want, with our aid, be it development, be it humanitarian, with our support for people in need, want to be sustainable. We have it very prominently marked in our cooperation in Switzerland's international cooperation strategy 21-24 where it's mentioned particularly education emergency and within our our protection mandate that this is one of our four priority areas uh, that humanitarian aid want to address in the years to come. What though can this new hub do in Geneva that Switzerland's support internationally for education already can't do or for example that UNICEF can't do? When I think about this hub, I think of a catalyst. I think of an amplifier, uh, of a center, of a convener. We have to channel all these different initiatives, these different activities, projects. We need, yeah, that's in the word of hub, we need a center where this comes together, where you can go and say, hey, what's going on in terms of education, particularly in crisis, in emergency, who is doing what, where can we find synergy, where uh, is the next project going, how is the situation in country in Sudan or in any other country, in a, in a country that is hit by a crisis. It doesn't have to be always, you know, a sort of a long-lasting crisis, also in, in, in short-term crisis. We need somewhere to go to have, indeed, as a center, to have the relevant information, to have the overview. And that's very much what we hope that this uh, center brings together and can provide as a service. In this sense, it's very much an, an advocacy mandate that we see that the center should uh, take on and center of excellency, a center of reference for all activities, all discussion, all policy uh, thinking around education, education in crisis in particular. It all sounds great, but how will the new hub really impact education in emergencies 
and those in the field trying to deliver it. I'm Julian Vipont and I am the Education Cluster Coordinator in Sudan. Basically, it's, it's my job to bring together all of the different partners, um, UN agencies, national organizations and international partners who are working in education and emergencies and to make sure that we have a, a common vision and a strategy and a plan and a way forward. So in a nutshell, that's what I do. Who better to ask than Julienne Vipond, an expert in delivering education in emergencies. She joined me from her current base in Sudan and gave me a picture of the needs. In Sudan, it's it's not only one emergency that children are facing, it's, it's many. First of all, we're in about the third wave of COVID-19 at the moment. This forced all schools to close in March of last year, and schools have remained closed for pretty much all of the 2020-2021 academic year, with a few bursts and starts from October onwards, where schools opened and then closed. But certainly there's been no continuity of, of learning. So that in of itself is a crisis and an emergency. In addition to that, we had extreme flooding last year, which affected nearly a million people, destroyed um, almost 600 schools. In Sudan, uh, all 18 states are affected uh, by displacement people internally displaced or, or refugees. And then at the moment, two of the major crises uh, that, that we're de- dealing with, one is the influx of refugees from the Tigray region of Ethiopia, and then also the escalation of violence um, in West Darfur as well. So all of these emergencies has really hindered children's ability to fulfill their right to education. You mentioned COVID-19. Obviously, there is a focus in developed countries who tend to escape natural disasters and extreme weather quite likely and don't have conflict, but they are now more aware themselves of the interruption to education. Can you tell me a little bit about maybe some of the the kids you meet and their experiences in trying to continue education? Well, I would say, I mean, when if we're comparing Sudan to more developed countries that have gone through COVID-19 and seen the closures of schools, there's some similarities, but there's so many differences. Obviously, when children are not able to go to school, they feel isolated, they're not able to socialize, they're not able to play with their, their friends. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's all the learning impacts that we're very concerned about as well. But in the context of Sudan, there's also numerous protection risks um, that come along with children not being able to go to school. Children are much more likely of being exploited, being abused. We see child labor, uh, sexual abuse, trafficking. There's always an increase of, uh, of child marriage and early pregnancy uh, for girls. So there's a number of protection risks that we're concerned about uh, when children can't go to school. And in a context like Sudan, when the school is closed, there's also a very high risk that some children will not return to school again ever. In Sudan already, even before COVID-19, more than 30%, possibly as high as 35% of children were already out of school even before COVID-19. So this is really a crisis on top of crisis on top of crisis. And of course, it affects the children themselves. It affects their families, their communities, and in fact, the entire fabric of the society. Father, mother, children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, relatives, neighbours, all crowded into one tent. They're among the latest Ethiopian refugees to cross the border into Sudan. To compound the difficulties facing Sudan, the conflict in Ethiopia's Tigray region has sent thousands of new refugees flooding across the border. 
As Julian outlines the multiple challenges and needs of this new crisis, it starts to become clear why a hub like the new one in Geneva, bringing together multiple areas of expertise, could be so useful. The risks to children were extremely, extremely high. Um, in the early days, um, most of the people who were crossing the border were, were single men. Um, and of course, that poses a very specific risk of gender-based violence to the children in the camp. So it was vital that we get children into into spaces that are going to be safe and keep them protected and link them to other services that they're going to need, while also emphasizing education and making sure that that continuity isn't lost. Um, and of course, you know, unfortunately, it's it's the case now that when we're looking at displacement in a refugee context, this is not going to be a short-term event. And unfortunately as well, it's, it's the case that when people are crossing, this isn't what is in their minds. What is in their minds is we will go back tomorrow. And this was one of the challenges actually in terms of um, relocating people from the transit sites to the camp itself because people were very hesitant to move from this area that was close to the border where they felt that they would be able to return home very soon. And then as the situation deteriorated and people realized that they would need to move, this was a huge mental shift for people. And it was, it was, it was very, very difficult. A lot of people did not want to leave and felt they, you know, obviously they, they had to. But uh, certainly in the, in the refugee context now, we're looking at 20 plus years is the global trend once people are displaced across across borders. And so, of course, within that framework, we need to ensure that education continuity is, is not lost. If we're not able to bring children into the fold and into education spaces immediately, there's a very, very high risk that we will lose them forever and they will never be able to return to education. You almost give me the sense that education, when when there's a humanitarian crisis, comes a kind of poor third or fourth after health and shelter. Yeah, it often does. And uh, and this is a mistake. And so, I mean, it's been it's been quite a fight, actually, over many years to, to put education in emergencies on the map as part of the first phase of interventions. But of course, when we are supporting children immediately to bring them into learning spaces, it also means that children have better access to food, better access to water, they're provided with shelter, they have better access to health facilities. So it's also an entry point uh, to better be able to support these children, as well as to ensure that children are not experiencing significant learning losses um, and to mitigate the risk of them, them dropping out in the longer term. But the reality is also that communities themselves tell us over and over again that education is a priority for them, even in an emergency uh, context. Good evening. All schools across Britain will close by the end of the week until further notice. Guten Abend, meine Damen und Herren. Der Bundesrat schließt die Schulen und verbietet Veranstaltungen. In fact, the COVID-19 crisis may have helped push education further up the agenda in donor countries, because they themselves, Ambassador Manuel Bessler points out, were suddenly confronted with school closures and millions of children missing out on classroom-based education. For a lot of people, that was a new experience. In Switzerland, where everything is so perfect and running according to the clock, to the, according to the Swiss railway, um, suddenly kids cannot go to school anymore. And uh, this was, for a lot of families, uh, a major shock. There were even you know, terms like, we have a COVID generation of kids. So sort of realize this is not a given. 
even in countries uh, like Switzerland, where everything works, so to clockwork. Even more so, of course, in countries that have to struggle with other crises, with other difficulties, challenges. I think very much this came to the forefront. In this sense, COVID was also a major wake-up call for, whoa, education is not something that comes automatically. Is that maybe a silver lining, if there can be one, of this pandemic, that maybe we are really thinking hard now about what we can do better and being more aware that access to things like education is, is just absolutely crucial? Very much agree. Absolutely. Don't see education in whatever condition as a, as a luxury, as a problem that they can sort of put on, a, on, a, on the back burner because, yeah, let's look later into uh, education. No, education, uh, as the term says, education in emergency is something that has also to take care of, to look at, to uh, yeah, be treated, dealt with in, uh, in, in crisis. I go that far that I say education is also saving lives because education is much more than sitting in a schoolroom. Education is providing kids or youth with, with vital information about how to behave in a certain situation, how to behave when you go to school, how to behave when you're approached by, I don't know, the armed forces, how do you behave when you see, I don't know, an unexploded ordinance, how do you behave in times of pandemic, uh, education is in this sense has a lot to do with protection. Education is for a lot of kids the only um, time they have access to food, where they can uh, sit somewhere and then be focused on something. Education is something that brings kids together and um, gives them a social setting. Uh, helps to establish and then maintain friendships. So education has to be seen as much more than just sitting in a, in a schoolroom. And therefore, I uh, hope that we all keep uh, education not only in the back of our minds, but very at the forefront. British aid money helped to fund a new building for the Alwata School in Yemen, now under threat as the UK slashes overseas assistance by about a third. Unfortunately, the pandemic has negative consequences for education too. Some traditional donors, most notably the United Kingdom, are cutting their aid budgets, and education in emergencies is already suffering. Yasmin Sharif again. Some will say, well, we have a lot of problems at home, we need to deal with that first. But I can tell you that for a child... And I come from Sweden. My father was Egyptian. I come from Sweden. For a child in Sweden who has access, full access to digital learning with a regular budget is $11,000 per child per year. It's a huge difference and a very little loss compared to a child in Burkina Faso, where you have to have an education for less than $200. And you have absolutely no access, no infrastructure to use an iPad or a computer. Here I speak about human solidarity. Humanity is about human beings. And if we do not support them now, because we want to cut budgets and hold back, they will be drawn in to armed groups, militia groups, terror groups. The boys will end up there. 
and the girls will be into forced child marriage and, and early, early child pregnancies and sexual trafficking. And before you know it, they'll be knocking on your door up in the better off countries today. They are all interrelated. It's going to reach one day or another. That's a pretty calculated appeal to self-interest among donor countries worrying about their COVID-damaged economies. But Julien Vipon has other, hopefully equally compelling arguments about why education must not be forgotten during humanitarian emergencies. What's so incredible about this work is that even when children have been displaced and they've faced unimaginable trauma, and they arrive at a refugee camp such as this one, when the first uh, temporary learning spaces went up, the moment in which uh, these schools were erected and uh, the blackboards were, were carried in, all of the schools gathered, and this was kind of the official opening of these learning centers, and, and the children were just screaming with, with joy and excitement to be able to return to some kind of sense of normalcy, to be in the classroom and to have other children to interact and, and to play with. So those are our priorities, as well as establishing a, a school routine for the children and to, to make sure that there's going to be a continuity of their learning. In terms of peace building, we know that education is a vehicle towards having a more peaceful society, absolutely. But also if we're committed to the sustainable development goals, education is really the key to unlocking this, as, uh, as Yasmin says again and again and again. I mean, if we want gender equality, invest in education. If we want to reduce poverty, eliminate hunger for climate action, um, for in increased uh, economic growth from so many of the sustainable development goals, as well as for peace building initiatives. Absolutely, education is the key. So now the hub is beginning its work in Geneva. As Manuel Bessler said, it will be a catalyst, an innovator, a knowledge centre for everyone working in education in emergencies. And Yasmin Sharif says, it couldn't be in a more appropriate city. We have to remember that New York is very much, for the United Nations, the political headquarters. The education sector has not fully taken advantage of the fact that Geneva is the humanitarian headquarters for the United Nations. When you operate in a crisis situation, in a crisis context, you've got to be close to the humanitarian context, the humanitarian headquarters of the UN, with civil society and NGOs and diplomatic community. And that is Geneva, because today most crises are protracted. You know, you look at Afghanistan, you speak about what is it, 50 years since 79? Uh, look at DRC Congo, where I just came back, they speak about decades. So that's why, for instance, refugee education is so important because they spend an average of 17 years as refugees. That's the whole school. So the hub brings us all together in one place. And that helps us to advocate for financing for education in crisis and emergencies, protracted crisis. It helps us work together, coordinate together, operate together, collaboration, collaboration. It's so important. And I really, really thank the government of Switzerland for being, taking this initiative and supporting all of us to come together. So this is 
how we will be working together financially, operationally, as coordinating and as going out there, working with different organizations to actually deliver results. It's, it's an, a fantastic revolutionary decision to establish the Geneva Global Hub. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. My thanks to Yasmin Sharif, Julien Vipon, Ambassador Manuel Bessler, and of course to you for listening. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website, swissinfo.ch including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too, from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria, to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines. And of course, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Swiss Info.